Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, they the show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. guy happy to be back i guess just a little bit tired from a uh, vacation tired from vacation i know right I <laughs> vacation from my vacation yeah yeah let's uh let's get going wish i had some of that f- fucking coffee you're drinking it looks really good yeah this is my uh first time back recording an actual episode <sighs> since baby uh so we we both might be kind of off our game a little bit but yeah this uh speaking of this coffee yeah can you believe it? Autumn is not even two and a half years old, and she made my coffee for me this morning. Not only did she make it, she poured it to this mug and gave it to me and like Wait. added Mr. Boogie's special sauce to it, she said. How? But it tastes really good. How old is Autumn? Not even two and a half. Developmentally, she's fine, but like this seemed really advanced anyway. No, no, I mean more like, can she even reach up into the cabinets to get the coffee? What? What is this? The, the, wait, hold on. Let me read this, this note she left me on the napkin. Good night, bingo? Oh, wait, I got to explain that because like we watch a lot of Bluey and her favorite character is Bingo, who's Bluey's little. Hey, you okay? Derek? Uh, I should stop drinking this coffee anyway. I know my wife gets kind of sleepy when she has dairy in her coffee, so maybe maybe that's it. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it wasn't Mr. Boogie's special sauce. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Watch Your Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, the coward Craven, and my co-host Aaron, the movie monster boy, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, and discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies like myself and horror junkies like Aaron alike. For our return, recording return at least, for you guys, thankfully, uh, our listeners, there shouldn't be that much of a pause at all, if any, but for our return to recording on the regular again we went in my opinion right to the deep end with uh <laughs> 2012's yeah. sinister i've been threatening you with this one for a while now so gl- glad that we're finally here yeah this one and insidious were two of the ones that i've been kind of dreading since day one since we started this podcast just because i knew they were jump scare heavy yeah. the type of <laughs> horror it deals with is very supernatural and demonic even but we'll get into that. We'll get all into that when we discuss the movie proper. But before that, Aaron, let's get right into our recommendation section. Like usual, we have no guests this week, just you and I. And for any of our listeners who are newer, uh, our recommendation section is the section of the podcast where we recommend other horror that is not the movie we're discussing, be it other horror movies, TV shows, video games, books, comics, etc., um, we recommend it to each other, and hopefully your audience hears something that you might want to check out for yourselves. So with that, Aaron, have you been getting into any horror lately? 
so honestly, I've taken a little bit of a break um, over the last several weeks since you and I have kind of been on recording hiatus and I've mostly just been editing. Uh, it's given me a good opportunity to kind of catch up on some non-horror stuff. Oh, and I guess, by the way, as we're recording this, we're smack in the middle of that aggravating window where all the summer movies decided to dump at once. So technically, the new Insidious movie dropped and uh, was only in theaters around here like a week, so I didn't really get a chance to see that. <laughs> Got Barbenheimered. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me is currently out but we have been out of town this entire weekend so i'm hoping to go see that on cheap tuesday of this coming week so maybe next recording i will discuss that or maybe even on patreon we'll see so the main thing i will mention is i finally fucking tackled stephen king's the stand quite a book to tackle yeah been years to building up to this one this is one that I have started maybe two or three times. I don't really even get past the first sentence, and I chicken out from the standpoint of, holy shit, this is like a 40-hour audiobook. Let me, like, do something else instead. But I initially wanted to start The Dark Tower, and then I really just kind of looked at how many more Stephen King books I've read. And granted, I have chugged through a ton of Stephen King over the last couple of years, primarily through audiobooks, but it's wild to me just how many more I have to go. Like, he's just that prolific of an author, right? Yeah. Even just to start The Dark Tower, there's just so many other books that are referenced or directly tied into that series that I was like, no, I can't. I've got to fucking keep getting all the background before I really dive into that. So I decided to like, look, you know, if I'm up for something epic, let me go ahead and knock out the stand because I know Randall Flagg and the Man in Black, like all that is tied in, right? This is one that a lot of horror people, I guess, I certainly came to Stephen King through the movies first. So I remember when the stand TV miniseries from the 90s was on, the one that Mick Garris directed that has Rob Lowe and Gary Sinise and Molly Ringwald and Ruby D and Jamie Sheridan in it. That's one of those things that like I've always heard about. I know it exists, but I haven't even really gone on my way to even Google image search it. Yeah, I have no idea what that series is like and like the aesthetic of it, because I, I do know the general premise and what happens through the stand. How the fuck do they like translate an apocalyptic epic like that into you know a 90s tv show basically so honestly it's really pretty okay it's pretty good they recently remastered it and released it on blu-ray and i want to say that that new remastered version is pretty readily available on streaming this was back when they would do those three night miniseries events on nbc or whatever so it's like five hours long, something like that. I mean, it's definitely very, very intense. Remember we had that conversation, I think, uh, I forget which episode, of one of our past episodes on, but it was one with Shelby on it. We talked about, don't you miss back in the day, like prestige TV in the way that TV Guide would publish this week, this yeah. starts, and it would become the thing. And this was pre-internet, so way pre-streaming. Yeah. Kind of like renting movies. It's a very like, 80s 90s thing that we'll just never get again yeah my parents subscribed to tv guide 
And so I remember getting issues that were like, this is the featured issue for The Stand. This is the featured issue for The Shining, the TV versions. And I remember flipping through those and seeing images in them and just being like, fuck is this? I want to watch this shit. They also did it with the movies because really, like, they didn't have these giant reveal. I mean, I'm sure they did at conventions, but otherwise, you know, again, pre-internet or the internet was still kind of in its early stages. They would do, like, massive movie magazine reveals of... Yeah previews for movies i remember getting one for uh the phantom menace and it showed all the artwork and all the people in costumes yeah i had the same fucking issue and i remember being so hype and then we all saw that movie yep (laughs) so anyway yeah like even as a kid i knew that movie was bullshit yeah i remember when the stand miniseries came on tv and i remember watching bits and pieces of it and i remember seeing the book this massive fucking tome sitting on the shelf in my uncle's bedroom at my grandmother's house. When I was young, he was in college, so his bedroom was still there with all of his shit because he would come home, you know, on the weekends and come home, you know, in between semesters. So he had all of his Stephen King books sitting on the shelf. And I remember the, like, old cover of the stand that had the avatars of good and evil fighting in the desert, right? So I just never really quite knew what it was until... Years later, and I rewatched the miniseries forever ago, and they've since made another version of The Stand for Paramount Plus that was apparently not any good. But the book in and of itself, the version that I read was, I think it's called like the complete or the uncut version that came out maybe a decade-ish ago, maybe even longer than that. So it's a little bit longer. There's some extra padding in there fleshing out some of the character relationships and that kind of thing. I think the book, you know, certainly hits different after living through COVID, right? Because so much of the book deals with the flu and just how it spreads and how little by little the cities are all impacted and society is impacted and just a lot of the uncertainty around like, we don't know if Captain Trips is going to affect fertility or all these long-term questions of just, we don't fucking know. And it's interesting because the book largely is still by the end, just like, we don't know the flu is still going to be around. It's still going to be here, but like, you know, we'll do our best just to kind of keep chugging. The miniseries definitely has a lot more corny spirituality angle to it. And while there is a lot of that in the book, I think the book is just a lot more humanistic In terms of just showing all of these characters who all have flaws, there are no perfect characters in this book, and just really showing like how these people made the decisions that they were making and what's driving them and how they kind of ended up where they ended up, and the imperfection of life just being kind of fucked and things not working out the way you expected, and some plot left turns that you aren't necessarily expecting to happen in the book where some characters die, some characters swap sides, some characters, like just different things happen. You're also not always sure, like, how are all these people going to come together? So I liked it overall. I will say that book is so goddamn long and it takes Mm, so long (laughs) for things to start getting wound up. You know, it's all these disparate people around the country, and they eventually all kind of filter either to Mother Abigail's side, or they filter to the man in black side, right? So it's just these people from different areas, different backgrounds, making their way to these two camps, and ultimately kind of the showdown between good and evil, right? 
it's a bit tedious to get there, right? It's a lot of setting up these characters and their backgrounds and their towns and everybody that lives in the towns and all the people that they have relationships with. And then, you know, the actual struggle to get from one side of the country to the other when everything is falling the fuck apart, right? That part of it is definitely tedious. But once the main plot stuff starts happening, it really gets rolling from there. I remember the climax of it. Again, I haven't read it. I've read through the synopsis because, like you said, other Stephen King material references The Stand yeah. a lot. And The Dark Tower is all over The Stand as well. And The Dark Tower is all over his, all his work, even in his, like, his short stories. So like, it got me curious. I looked it up and I remember the climax of The Stand being balls to the wall bonkers. It takes a while to set up, but once it gets there, it's... Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, I mean, it literally ends with a bang in kind of a big, ridiculous way. Some characters that I know are like fan favorites didn't necessarily click with me. Some characters that I didn't like at first really grew on me over the course of the story. I don't know. I enjoyed a lot of aspects of it. Boy, oh boy, is it one that and I know it's fucking sacrilege to say this, but I feel like the book should have been a lot shorter. This book really needed an editor. Yeah, You know, I I didn't read the original version, so I don't know how much more the uncut version really adds, but oof-a-doof. I think it's a good chunk more. It takes a while to, like, really get up and going. By contrast, I had been listening to other Stephen King stuff, and it's just wild, like, oh, this one's, you know, a nine-hour audiobook and you're in and out. So this one was... I wouldn't say it was a chore to get through, but it was tedious. It was paced, and I had to be patient. Much like people literally wandering the wasteland from fucking Maine all the way to Colorado. <laughs> like, I had to just be yeah. fucking patient and make my way through it. I haven't read any Stephen King work where he is the bad guy in it, but I like the concept of the man in black sure. and Randall yeah. Flagg. I know that a lot of fan theories out there, but like, it's basically between him and the creature from it. Yeah. There's fan theories that they're the same being, there are fan theories that one or the other is the great evil of the Stephen King universe. The thing I appreciate about Stephen King is you don't necessarily, unless you're like reading like The Dark Tower where you have to read like a series, you don't necessarily need to read. It's not like Marvel MCU where you have to watch WandaVision to know what the fuck is happening in, in the latest Doctor In terms Street. of continuity. Yeah, 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 I get what you're saying. Yeah, but you can. It's there if you want to deep dive for fun, but you don't necessarily need to. Um, and I always appreciate that about Stephen King's work. Kind of like. How uh, was it the Dead Zone and Cujo technically crossover because Cujo might be the spirit of the serial killer from the Dead Zone. Yeah. You don't need to really know that. That's just kind of a fun Easter egg for fans. That is one of the things I do like about Stephen King stuff, because if you do deep dive like I have, you'll find a lot of stuff. There's a lot of fan theories. There's a lot of crossovers. Literally all his books supposedly take place in the same multiverse. And the multiverse is the Dark Tower, so it yeah. uh, makes sense. So, yeah, I'm still kind of absorbing it, right? There's just so much to kind of discuss and take in with that. The KingCast podcast has done multiple, multiple episodes on the stand with different guests. And every time they kind of always uncover whole new layers of discussion that weren't there before. So, I mean, it's definitely worth checking out especially if you're a hardcore Stephen King fan and you just haven't gotten around to it for the length or whatever but it really is a massive American epic it's just you have to go into it with some patience yeah you know so I, I fully understand the people that have tried and like put this one back down but it's it's worth going through now is it my favorite King book 
No. There are Stephen King books that I have liked much more than The Stand, but I appreciate its place in his oeuvre, right? I appreciate the impact that it's had on larger post-apocalyptic stories and media and that kind of thing. Like the entire time I was just thinking of The Last of Us because we had just finished watching that HBO show, right? And there's a lot of threads of that too. You know, they literally go from Boston out to Colorado. It's a lot of the same kind of feel, right? So, you know, strong recommend, obviously. Just go into it knowing, like, it's going to be an uphill battle, but you can definitely do it. (laughs) Yeah, I do like that old artwork of the two avatars fighting in the desert. Oh, yeah. That artwork's pretty rad. All those old King books are, like, burned into my head because, again, they were all sitting in my uncle's bedroom growing up, so a lot of those images are just there. Okay, and just briefly, a movie to kind of mention real quick. I I watched the last horror film directed by David Winters. The Cat Films Festival, where the rich and famous go to have a good time. The last part of it. You don't understand me! Unfortunately for Jenna, an obsessed fanatic is also there to have a good time. The last horror film. What began as an international film premiere ended in a nightmare. The last horror film. It may be the last horror film you ever see. I talked to you about this one pretty steadily simply because you had recently brought up that you watched Maniac on a recent episode as mm-hmm. one of your recommendations. This is a unofficial sequel, sequel spiritually to Maniac. That's right. I remember you texting me about this. Yes. Yeah. It is a spiritual successor to Maniac in that it still stars Joe Spinell and Caroline Monroe, and it's very much about a sweaty, obsessive fan who has delusions of grandeur and is convinced that he is the greatest movie director of all time and, you know, just needs his one big break. And he is obsessed with this scream queen that Monroe plays. And he literally follows her to the fucking Cannes Film Festival. They shot most of this movie guerrilla style at Cannes. That's kind of the, like, main notable thing I'll say about it, because the movie itself is kind of meh. So it's meta. But it's very interesting that, oh, this is 1980-81 con, because there's posters up everywhere for all these fucking movies around that time. There's like a poster up for Possession, stuff like that. But I just pulled it up while you were talking about it again, because I remember when I read this the first time, it took me aback a little bit. But in the movie... She's playing an actress who is nominated for Best Actress at the film festival for a movie called Scream. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And this predates Scream by almost, what, 20 years? Well, over 15. Yeah, about about (laughs) 15. So it's interesting in that sense. It is definitely a, like, cleaner, more polished movie than Maniac. It is definitely a little bit more exploit. Like, it's it's wild to say it's more exploitative than Maniac. But there's just a lot more comedy and titillation in this i guess there is 
gore and violence, but it is definitely heightened and kind of purposefully over the top and ridiculous in kind of a knowing way. Maniac still just feels grungy and mean and just really slimy, right? This movie definitely has a tongue-in-cheek feel to it. Like I said, it's directed by David Winters, who is an actor. I mean, he's in like the original West Side Story, but he's directed a wild, weird chunk of stuff, and he's produced a lot of stuff as well. And so again, this was not an official sequel to Maniac in any sense, but it was always kind of marketed as that. Right. There's really wild dream sequences in it as well, which also kind of helps with the connection to Maniac. And then there is kind of this weird, slightly meta twist gotcha ending that is also, again, kind of similar to how Maniac ends in this odd way. I mostly watch this because. Severin made a big deal recently of like, oh shit, we're putting out the last horror film on 4K and it's this limited thing and it's such a big deal and this movie's been like lost forever and that's why blah blah blah, we finally got it. And then once I started looking, I was like, no, this is on Tubi. Granted, it's the original title, Fanatic, but it it is on Tubi for free. You know, you can you can watch it. It's not necessarily that lost. But that was one where I was like, okay. Am I just getting that, like, physical media collector FOMO? Do I need to buy this? This seems like something I would like. What is this? And I was like, no, I don't need to be spending a ton of money right now on this. Let me watch this to see if I even like this movie. I've never seen this movie. I never really blind buy. And then sure enough, it was it was fun. It starts off and I was like, what the fuck is this? I remember texting you about 30 minutes in and being like, what am I mm-hmm. watching? Yep. And <laughs> over the course of the movie, it becomes more apparent what's going on. And some of the tongue in cheek quality starts to like really settle in and amplify. And you really start to figure out what the vibe of the movie is, because it's not clear at the beginning. Am I supposed to be taking this seriously or not? And honestly, by the end, it ends pretty great. So. You know, I would recommend checking it out. Again, it is free on Tubi. I wouldn't say spend that 50 bucks or so to get the 4K of it from Severin just yet until you know that you like it. But as a weird kind of mirror world alternate kind of thing to Maniac, it's an interesting watch. And frankly, at the end of the day, Carol Monroe and Joe Spinell are both excellent in both movies. That's the reason to watch them is their performances are so fucking good. Joe Spinell is one of the best dudes of his generation, hands down. Just everything I see of his from the 80s, I'm just like, holy shit, I'm sold on Joe Spinell as an actor. And it's so unfortunate that he died so early because there could have been some wild, wild eras of his career had he you know, lived and kept working. But yeah, I, again, I would recommend check it out with the qualified, you know, don't go in expecting maniac, but a lot of the connections are there. So yeah, that is the last horror film, AKA fanatic. Nice. Cool. Well, I also only have two recommendations. I, despite like having not recorded in a couple months, I really have not. You've been busy. Consumed much horror. You've been busy regardless. (laughs) You, you have an excuse, but I got two recommendations. One is pretty well-known, pretty easily available video game. The other is, well, the other one is going to be kind of odd to talk about, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But let me start with the video game. I'm actually going to recommend a video game that I am surprised I enjoyed and played as much 
of it as I did. Um, it is kind of exactly what I needed in the process of welcoming my second child because it was one of those games where I could just put on for like an hour or two, turn my brain off, listen to a podcast, even play, not really pay that much attention to the story, but have a lot of fun and then turn it off. And, uh, you know, I put about 15, 20 hours into it and I beat it. Um, and I had a blast with it, a surprising blast with it. And that's Dead Island 2 from earlier this year, from 2023. Sam, if we're immune, we need to tell the authorities. I hear you. I'm part of the CDC team in L.A. Ah, you don't know shit. Out there, you gotta be a mechanic, medic. Jackie fucking Chan rolled into one. I've seen all the movies. No! There's millions of those things out there just waiting to sink their teeth into us. You're screwed, man. I think the survival of the human race may depend on the blood in my veins. Yeah, yeah man, no shit. This motherfucker. This motherfucker. Let me back up a little bit, because the history of Dead Island 2 is kind of crazy. I was about to say, wait, didn't this game come out five years ago? No. Okay. So the original Dead Island came out back in 2011, like on 360 and all of that. There's always been first-person shooters. Doom has been around, and you can slay zombies in first-person in a lot of games, but most of the time, the games aren't just focused on zombies. And that was one of those things that I always thought as a kid, even growing up, as we had Resident Evil, but all that was in third person. Sure. And so it seemed like a no brainer to like, why don't you make a zombie apocalypse first person game? You know, because at that point we had Fallout 3. You know, it seemed very like once we had reached the level at least of 360 PS3 era, it seemed like we have the technology now where we can kind of put out a game like that. And that's sure enough, Dead Island came out. And granted, Dead Island, I thought was a little repetitive, tedious, and it was more geared towards multiplayer, which I never did play it multiplayer, only played it single player. And it, I never finished the first Dead Island. I got pretty far into it, but I kind of gave up because I was, I was starting to get bored of it and I put multiple hours into it. But I always enjoyed it for what it was. And I was always curious about Dead Island 2. Well, Dead Island 2 had been in development hell for like several years. Okay, It was originally supposed to be released back in like 2015 development for it was even announced as early as 2012 i remember seeing a trailer for it years ago that's why i was yeah. asking okay yeah because they, they, they had early gameplay footage in 2014 and everything for it part of kind of what killed the development for a while was a uh, Techland, who i think was involved with the development of the first game basically broke away from dead island 2 and started making dying light which is also another first person zombie okay. survival game Dying Light 1 and 2, I'm sure a lot of people and most critics would argue are the better superior games because they are more single player focused. They have more parkour elements to it. They're a faster speed game than Dead Island 1, especially maybe even Dead Island 2 as well. Whereas Dead Island is more focused on co-op or focusing on like the zombie slaying itself, I would say. I don't know. I've never really put in any time in the Dying Light games, so they seem to be the better games, but whatever. 
you know, and then since 2014, this game has bounced around in and out of development hell. I think a couple other studios are trying to jump in and take over development. Bits and pieces of news came out over the years like, oh, it's still in development. Oh, it's no longer under development. Come to last year at GamesCon of last year, 2022, they reveal a release date for 2023. They delayed it for two months. So people started getting like, are you sure it's coming out? Because now you're delaying it again. But it did finally release in April 2023 of this year. And it got okay reviews. You know, it's sitting around the 75 Metacritic average as far as critics go. It sold pretty well. I think as of a couple months ago, it had moved over 2 million units. And there's DLC already planned on the way, like heavy like story DLCs, not just an extra mission or two. So the DLCs at the moment of this recording are not out yet. Um, I've only played through the main campaign. I played it fully by myself. I didn't try to co-op. I'm guessing playing this co-op would be a fucking blast. Um, I would actually like to try that at anyone out there ever gets us on sale or something. The premise is it takes place about 15 years after the first Dead Island. Somehow another zombie outbreak occurs and it's a stronger zombie outbreak with a lot more variants of zombies. It breaks out in Los Angeles. The government quarantines the entirety of Los Angeles. Escape from New York, escape from LA style. Not letting anybody in or out. You're not really on an island. You're just in Los Angeles, but I guess you could make the argument that the island is now Los Angeles because it's been quarantined off. So you're trapped on the island of Los Angeles. You get to pick one of six slayers and all six slayers at the beginning of the game are boarding one of the last evacuation flights out of the quarantine. And since it takes place in Los Angeles, there's tons of tongue in cheek references to L.A. culture and just like Hollywood and everything throughout this game. And even the slayers themselves are kind of all caricatures of various people you'd maybe meet in Los Angeles. One of them is a stuntman. The other is a male stripper who like his male stripper alter ego is a fireman. So he is big and buff and he's like the tank slayer. Another one is like a roller derby woman who's really good with melee. You have like a motorbike stunt woman, a street hustler, et cetera, et cetera. And you pick one of the slayers during the evacuation flight. One of the people on the flight is infected and bites another person and all in the confusion. The military decides to shoot the plane down because they're monitoring like the onboard uh, and they don't want any anybody escaping quarantine. Whichever slayer you pick survives a crash, but as they're trying to help rescue survivors, they themselves are bitten. And one of the other survivors, who's an actress, says, like, you know, if you're still alive and you can make it, here's my address, meet me here. I'm setting up a shelter at my like mansion in LA. And sure enough, you find out that your slayer is actually immune to the zombie outbreak. They survive the bite. They don't get infected. They make it to the actress's mansion. Other stuff happens. You wind up meeting one of the main characters from the first Dead Island. At some point, you find out that there is a CDC doctor who is looking for anyone who is immune to the zombie outbreak, saying they can synthesize a cure from their blood. So you have to kind of work your way through different parts of L.A. to get to the CDC doctor. It's not quite fully open world game. There's like six or seven zones and they're different part. Like it's Venice Beach and, you know, Santa Monica and all this. Each zone is open world to an extent, but like there's still some linearity to the game, which I actually appreciated. It's not like overwhelmingly big. It's just a fucking blast to kill zombies in this game. <laughs> More than any game I've ever played, the way you can kill zombies in this game is just so fucking fun. There is a ton of weight to the way you like slay zombies, like when you're swinging either a bladed weapon or a blunt weapon or you're shooting them. 
Of course, there is a crafting system in, in way of like you can find more powerful weapons that are like rarer sure. and you can customize them to like give them fire damage or give them like acid damage. They have this game system called Flesh, which stands for Fully Locational Evisceration System for Humanoids. And it's basically a procedurally generated dismemberment system. <laughs> and it is fucking gruesome. This game is probably one of the most gory games I've ever played in my life. You can literally target limbs and not just cut them off, but like you can basically like remove the skin down to the bones, expose organs. And I'm not doing it justice in, in the description. I, I don't know if like you can Google image search some of the like gore of this game, but the flesh system is fucking gnarly. And it is bloody and gore-filled. If bodily evisceration makes you kind of queasy, like, kind of avoid this game. You can gut zombies, you can expose their hearts, you could do all kinds of shit, and you can continue to even maim a zombie after you've killed it to, like, basically turn it into bloody meat and soup. Like, it's fucking wild. It's pretty ridiculous. The game is surprisingly has a nice balance, I thought, between, like, humor and some serious moments. Sometimes the humor falls flat. Sometimes the humor is just very base level. Let's poke fun at LA, which is fine. Again, I, I wasn't playing this game so much for the story. It was such a good turn your brain off and just kill the shit out of zombies. The first few hours are a little tough going because you kind of get your ass kicked a lot. And if you wander into a zombie that's a way higher level than you are, it can kill you pretty easily. But as you get stronger and then start unlocking like guns and start finding weapons that are, are a lot stronger, more durable, more powerful, etc. You, you can see the progression of your character becoming like a zombie-killing machine throughout the game. The game also is well-paced in variety of zombies, like in terms of zombie types that you encounter. Even late game, you're still finding like a new variety of zombies that attack you and surprise you. The zombie designs are pretty fun because you have, you know, you have your traditional like walkers shamblers and runners but then you also have a zombie who can summon insects and if you stand in the insect cloud it drains your stamina you have a zombie that is literally like just a walking bomb basically it explodes and can kill you that way you have a zombie that belches up acid and can shoot acid at you so the zombie types are always pretty fun i will say it is kind of hard to justify this game with how many bangers have come out in 2023 as far as video games go like look i know i should be playing Zelda, I should be playing all these other games, but this just felt like a game I didn't feel like so much of a devotion sure. to it. Like again, I could just kind of put it on and off when I wanted to. It was surprisingly a lot more enjoyable for me than I thought it would be. If you can kind of get past the first maybe two hours, and not even from like two hours of tutorials and cutscenes, I mean just the two hours of the difficulty curve, because again, you're kind of weak in the beginning. Also, depending on the slayer you choose. I played around with two different slayers. The two slayers I picked were Amy, who is a Paralympian runner. She has a prosthetic right leg. I played as her for most of the game, and I also played as Ryan, the male stripper, for a chunk of the game. And they, they actually did play pretty differently. Like, Amy was extremely quick. Her stamina didn't drain when she was running. I winded up beating the game with her. Ryan was a lot more of a tank-type character. Both were a lot of fun. Each slayer is fully fleshed out in terms of full voice acting and each of them has their own like subplot reason as to what they're doing in LA. It was a ton of fun. 20 hours in hundreds of zombie deaths behind me and it was still so much fucking fun to smash zombies heads in. I've never had a game make it so satisfying like this. Am I going to say it's up there with some of my favorite games of all time? No, but it was a lot of fun and it was surprising a lot of fun. 
And uh, yeah, if you can find a couple buddies, definitely try this out co-op. I bet this is fucking fun as shit at co-op. So again, Dead Island 2. The second recommendation I have, and like I said, Aaron, I'm going to kind of go a little bit all over the place with this one. I'm going to recommend an author, a horror author, by the name of Dennis Etchinson. I'm specifically going to recommend his book, The Dark Country, which is a collection of short stories of his. Now, to back up before, Aaron, you had me listen to the Halloween 4 episode of the podcast, Best Movies Never Made. And on that episode, they had guests, Michael Kennedy, who is the screenwriter for the slasher movie Freaky that yes. came out pretty recently. He was also one of the co-hosts of the Attack of the Queer Wolf podcast that Heather and I have yeah. recommended multiple times. Yeah. And then the other guest they had was Grady Hendrix, who is like a modern yeah. horror master writer. And that podcast, because they referenced the book Taking Shape 2, which was all the unused Halloween sequel scripts, yeah. and geared me towards that book. And I recommended that book back on our 100th episode with Patrick Bromley, which we did Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So listeners, go back and listen to our 100th episode. But during the Halloween 4 episode of Best Movies Ever Made, they talked extensively about this horror author named Dennis Etchinson and his Halloween 4 script. And his Halloween 4 script was fucking kind of bonkers and great in the best ways. So after that, besides Taking Shape 2, that episode led me down another rabbit hole. And the rabbit hole was of Dennis Etchinson. Where that led me to was Dennis Etchinson. He's no longer with us. He passed back in 2019. He was a writer and editor for a lot of fantasy and horror fiction and dark fantasy specifically. And he kind of seems like looking his stuff up and reading stuff about him and an analysis on his work. He seems like the horror writer's horror writer. Stephen King himself called him like one hell of a fiction writer. He had been hailed by others as one of the more original like horror writers in America. He's still kind of underrated and unknown, unfortunately, because he didn't really publish too much in the way of standalone books. Most of his work, again, was done in editing and script writing yeah. and then short story writing. But his short story collection, The Dark Country, specifically, it was published back in 1982. And the title story, again, The Dark Country, actually won the World Fantasy Award. And he tied with Stephen King that year. And he also won the British Fantasy Award for Best Collection of the Year. And that was the first time the same writer received both major awards for a single work. And that's kind of what led me to The Dark Country. Now, looking up Stephen Etchinson's work, especially The Dark Country, it is hard to come by because it is out of print. It hasn't been reprinted. Uh, last I checked on Amazon alone, copies of The Dark Country hardcover, just glancing at it right now, it ranges anywhere from $75 to $190, depending on Jeez. if you get it used or new. There's only one paperback available on Amazon used, and it is $72. However, The Dark Country is it's on uh, Audible, so you can still get it as an audiobook, thankfully. So Aaron, I know you may want to check it out. He has other more available collections, and I would kind of just recommend as I go through this, like if this guy sounds fascinating to you, like you can find other collections of his for cheaper, like just search Dennis Etchinson on ebay or amazon or wherever you get your books but who knows maybe like if you go into a used bookstore you can find the dark country it's kind of a gem i got lucky actually i found a hardback first edition copy of the dark country on ebay and i put in a bid for it i actually lost the bid originally but the person who beat me and my bid was a lot lower than what the the person who beat me 
apparently that didn't happen and that fell through. So the person who was trying to sell it apparently was having trouble moving this book. Yeah, sure. I mean, even though it's a collectible, it's still a book and book collectibles aren't big sellers, I guess. Sold me the book for a lot cheaper. I still pay like 50 or more dollars for one collection of short stories. So it's not like I got a hell of a deal. So I read through The Dark Country after my daughter was born, you know, because since they were short stories, I would read like a short story here and there in one sitting and I finally got through it. It is unlike anything I've ever read before because I'm used to more modern horror writing. I'm used to Stephen King short stories. Yeah. Reading Dennis Etchinson was a trip because it's a style of writing. I can't quite put my finger on it. It's not fully surrealistic. Like it's not fully David Lynch or like fully Cormac McCarthy, but it has vibes of both, like in terms of dread and darkness and depressing inward type fiction where it more is a focus on like individuals or people rather than like mapping out this horror world. Whereas I feel like Stephen King is more focused on the world sometimes with his work. All the short stories were all around California and LA. And depending on the story, you would travel from the streets of LA out to like the Mojave Desert. So there was a very West Coast feel to everything. And that added to like that dark noir style that we sometimes see in in David Lynch's work, specifically in Lost Highway. But again, it, even the more surreal stories that he wrote in this collection are pretty easy to follow. Like, it's not sure. fully untouchable, but the two stories he's most well known for out of this book are The Dark Country, like the title itself, the one that won all the awards. And then the other one is The Late Shift. And The Late Shift he's known for because it follows this idea of what if all the people who work graveyard shifts from two in the morning till eight in the morning at like gas stations or quickie marts or whatever were actually maybe the undead themselves ghouls in a way but a very different take on ghouls that story itself was a lot of fun because the setup is that a group of guys are coming back from a late night showing of the texas chainsaw massacre and they stop at a convenience store and they they see a, a person they once knew that they thought might have died in a car crash but now here they are working at the convenience store question mark and it kind of goes from there and you see this in both the late shift and then he has three other stories that are a trilogy in itself where it almost crosses into sci-fi and it feels a bit like cronenberg this feels like a cronenberg thing that he would have created where the idea of if there's a car crash and someone's dead these kind of freelancers show up to basically try and harvest the organs under the guise of like we're EMTs and we're here to help, but they're actually there to like grab the organs and take the body and go. And it's, it's kind of crazy. The thing with Etchison's work, especially with the dark country, it's not afraid to bounce between the supernatural. And then again, just really weird fucked up and dread inducing moments that could just happen in real life. Like you're at a laundromat in the middle of the night and the only other person there is someone who is making you severely uncomfortable. It does such a good job of that. The first story itself does lean more towards on the supernatural. It's a lot of fun. There were like two or three that I could take or leave, but for the most part, all of them were a lot of fun. A lot of them felt very inward and very dark and depressing. So it's not necessarily a light read, but it is a quick read. Sure. And, yeah. and again, it's, it's very much an exploration around West Coast, L.A. I had a lot of fun with it. It's unlike anything I've ever read before. It does look like it is available on Internet Archive. 
You can check it out, in air quotes, from the San Francisco Public Library. They have it available digitally. So you can hop right on there, log into your archive.org account, and you can read it for free. Perfect. That is an easy way to check it out. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's not quite like anything else you'll read, and I'm pretty confident in saying that. Hell yeah. All right. Well, let's get started talking about our movie. So like you said, uh, we were looking for like what we could jump back in with. We had just done something kind of new with Saw, kind of old with God Told Me To, mostly some sci-fi weirdness, some human fuckery. So we were kind of trying to figure out what do we want to do, what direction do we want to go in. We threw out a couple of ideas and landed on Sinister, 2012 movie directed by Scott Derrickson, written by him and Robert Cargill. We have already covered Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is Derrickson's kind of breakout movie. And honestly, I think this might be his best. He directed The Black Phone most recently and the first Doctor Strange movie, but I honestly think Sinister might be his fucking best movie. It's one that I saw years ago. It definitely creeped the shit out of me, and this is the stuff that normally does not get under my skin. Um, but I will talk more in depth about that. And this is one that I have told people for years. Like, look, the poster looks cheesy. The trailers and the marketing aren't the best. Give this movie a shot. There is bound to be something in here that is going to unsettle you. So for this being your first watch, what are your thoughts? Well, just uh, real initially, because then we can give them a, a small taste of the movie with the trailer. But kind of backing up to something you said where the director's breakout movie was Exorcism of Emily Rose, which we have covered that with Lauren, frequent guest on our show. Go back and listen to that episode if you're interested. And I liked that movie quite a bit. This is something that I kind of went back and forth with after watching Sinister. Uh, I think Sinister is a lot scarier than Exorcism of Emily Rose. And I thought Exorcism of Emily Rose was pretty fucking scary. I was not really sure what is the better movie because I watched this several days ago, so I had time to think about it. And I do agree with you now. I think Sinister is the better movie of the two. And I haven't really watched any. I mean, I watched Doctor Strange, but I don't really count that. I don't really count MCU movies, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, no, not as, like, not as far comes, as his horror stuff, especially. Yeah, but I do think Sinister is a superior movie. I don't think it's a perfect movie, and we'll get into all that. But I do think it is the spear movie but before we get really into an earnest discussion like here is the trailer what you can expect from this movie i didn't want to move here we couldn't afford to live in the old house anymore plus the new story i'm writing is here is the story a good one this time i'm gonna write the best book that anybody's ever read i got a really good feeling about this (laughs) you gotta be kidding me Hanging out, barbecue seven That's the family who lived here. You think these are serial murders? I don't know. First one I found dates back to the sixties. The only link between all these cases is the symbol. The symbol is associated with a pagan deity named Bagul. He consumes the souls of human children. I have never been onto something this 
Muslims believe that Bagul actually lived in the images themselves and that they were gateways into his realm. Children exposed to the images were especially vulnerable to Bagul's abduction. Sweetheart, what are you doing? Painting. I wanted to paint her picture. Who are you talking about? Stephanie. She used to live here. What's happened? Get the kids, pack the car. We have to leave here now. So yeah, this is 2012 Sinister. Aaron, first off, fuck you for having us watch <laughs> this movie. Um, this one was one of the scarier ones. Uh, so I'll, I'll do this up top for horror newbies out there. If jump scares are something you don't like, demonic supernatural activity, which granted, the villain, so to speak, of this movie isn't necessarily a demon, but may as well be one. Familial violence even towards children, on-screen deaths of children. Granted, you don't necessarily see faces or anything like that, but it's a very much implied. That's something you don't want to deal with. Uh, you may want to avoid this movie. You basically watch multiple snuff films through this movie along uh -huh. with Ethan Hawke's character. So there's that. There's also a bit of other themes going on. There's also a bit of a familial strife, specifically between Ethan Hawke and his wife. Some alcohol abuse on his end obsession leading to the downfall of his entire family basically 2012 we still hadn't quite had this mainstream true crime explosion but it was starting to happen and it's interesting that the main character is a true crime writer and this movie setup is so much on the idea of chasing true crime and trying to be like the next in cold blood truman capote yeah granted there's is that argument though that true crime has always been popular it's just now that we're more open about it now that we have access to streaming and there's so much content out there that everyone is now like okay with admitting that we're all like a little obsessed with true crime and serial killers and all that but you know at the time 2012 it still wasn't quite an open conversation like it is now yeah water cooler talk so it was interesting to see that so you're dealing with those kind of themes that, that kind of horror just to give you an idea of kind of how scary this movie can get back in 2020 there was a study done by broadband choices that named sinister is the scariest movie of all time based on the analysis of viewer heart rates this is dumb shit <laughs> yeah very dumb shit but like the study basically had a sample of 50 of the highest rated horror movies kind of based on like metacritic averages between imdb and Rotten tomatoes and all that and measured participants heart rates while watching the movies and the average heart rate jumped up the most with an increase of like over 30%, the highest among all the films with Sinister. Now, I will say this, as scary as this is, as unapproachable, if like, if the same type of shit that gets me gets you, is this the scariest movie I've ever watched? Actually, no, I wouldn't say that. Is it the scariest movie, in my opinion, that we've covered? No, I actually think that I was more affected by, still, by the autopsy of Jane Doe than this movie. Sure. This movie felt kind of along the same level to me as oculus in terms of the horror and like jumpiness if we watch this movie in the first 10 episodes of our show 
I might be singing a different tune, but now that we're watching 120 yeah. something episodes in. Now you know what it's like to chase that dragon, huh? <laughs> yeah, like it didn't get me just nearly as bad. Now, granted, was I still like, as I'm about to go to bed, turning off the lights at night, picturing in my head a dead girl's face appearing right next to mine. Uh, yeah, I did. And <laughs> was the idea of just like, can I trust my own children now not to like do what happens in this movie? Can I deal with that? Yeah, that thought also crossed my head. This movie still fucked me up a little bit, I will say. So just wanted to get that out there. Like, you're forewarned. This is a high jump scare movie. A lot of in your face stuff. Surprisingly, not too many sound cues, but when the sound cues happen with a jump scare, there's one, and we'll get to it. It's the famous one. It's the one you probably already know about. It is still effective. I still knew about it, and it still got me, and most of it was due to the sound that happens. I almost threw my goddamn laptop out of my lap when it happens. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I enjoyed the hell out of this movie years ago when I saw it. This is, as we've discussed many times, not particularly the kind of horror that gets to me possession haunted house ghost kids demon possession stuff like none of that really is a hundred percent my cup of tea as far as what i personally find affecting but i think this movie is just so well made that there is an edge to this that you only get when you really know how to work all facets of the filmmaking side of this. This movie's scares are effective because they are well edited. The soundscape is amazing. The like little bit of score, lack of score slash other music sampled is very dread inducing. The just general look and feel of the movie is also a good vibe because it's not your typical haunted house with paint cracked walls and spider webs and a dark spoopy basement this is like the most regular ass house now i will push back against that a little bit but i'll let you finish your point this is like <laughs> the most regular ass little flat ranch house in long island granted it seems like the lights are never on but yes <laughs> so yeah they are like literally eating dinner in the fucking pitch so black that's where i'll push back the, the yeah. lights are rarely on but it's not a spoopy house like that's one of the things about the conjuring that i kind of push back on is no fucking family in their right mind would move into that house with all of its peeling paint broken windows and and mold just all this bullshit like nobody looks at that house and is like oh that looks delightful let's move in family yeah now i agree with that because there's a lot of horror movies that do that but with going back to the sinister house which i agree with you especially on the outside it looks like america anywhere ranch style house even the backyard where like the fucking opening image of the movie which is haunting otherwise is, is a normal american backyard or whatever but these people they don't use lighting so much that it would bother me through this movie. Like no normal family in their right minds would keep the house that fucking dark all the time in every situation. No lights are on. And I will also push back the spooky basement stuff. The attic is kind of like that. But not really. The attic is empty, right? But it's not like it's full of like 
old creepy dolls and like no. you know a hat rack that looks like a man in the corner like it doesn't have any of that bullshit some things are naturally like creepy and an attic is always creepy and the way he sets up his office also had a creepy vibe but again that goes back to like no one in this family uses lights i think a lot of what you're reacting to is just darkness and shadows which that is a lot of what makes this movie effective like honestly one of the creepiest fucking moments in this movie is when you see ethan Hawke sleeping in bed and then just all of a sudden a flashlight just pops on him yeah. for a hot second he starts to kind of wake up and it just clicks off stuff like that is so fucking creepy to me Whereas a dark house doesn't bother me. That I agree with. I understood in that scene, like, otherwise it's just nighttime darkness and everyone's asleep. And just the way the lighting of the movie is, like, that I understood. It's when they're just, like, going about their day-to-day business. Even in early night, no one's putting on lights. Like, no one's just turning a light switch on. Any other person I've ever met, anytime I've gone into anyone's house. So growing up in the South, especially in New Orleans, we had a swarmer season during the summers. Yeah. And swarmers are flying termites. And what attracts them are lights. And if you leave the lights on in your house, they can get in through the windows and everything. It's a fucking mess. And so my parents were always paranoid about swarmers. During those summer months, we would keep as many lights off as possible in our house during the nighttime. And even then, it still wasn't like this house, like as far as how (laughs) dark it was. I get the aesthetic choice. I get all of that. But it did take me out of the movie a little bit to the point where I was just like, this family's nuts with wanting to keep it this dark all the time, unless they're trying to like keep their power bill down. If that was the case, sure. But <laughs> otherwise, this is just unnecessarily dark all the time. Yeah, they just moved in that day, and the power like didn't get cut on. Yeah, yeah. So, just other kind of random bits and pieces of things. This is a rare pro pet movie. Yeah, <laughs> does the dog die? Dot com. Yeah. Technically, no. That dog in that one film, like, you never see it die. Yep. So. That little chihuahua lives, totally. But funny enough, one of the last times I watched this was when we were still living back in Mississippi. And the house that we were in, previous owners had installed some speakers in the ceiling. So it was fucking great because it essentially gave me, like, full Atmos set up with my home theater. When we were watching this, the first time I watched it with Heather... The scenes where you hear all the stomping and banging around the attic, the dogs flip the fuck out. So we had three dogs all running around to like various corners of the room, just screaming at the fucking ceiling. I I get that because I had to watch this on my laptop because Autumn was around, but I had the headphones I have on right now, which are pretty much noise canceling and pretty high quality headphones. Those scenes where you hear the stomping in the attic, were effective in that like it sounded like it was coming above me so i can imagine what it was like at full surround sound. yeah it was pretty funny watching the dogs just run around being freaked out by it but what's interesting is this is another good example kind of like the original texas chainsaw massacre kind of like the original halloween it's pretty tame in terms of the content. The actual gore on screen, yeah. It's not there that is gory. little to no gore in this movie. There is very little in terms of foul language. There is no sex or nudity. Yeah. All of the more sensational things that a lot of filmmakers will say, like, oh, you need to have all this stuff in there to, like, juice the audience and get them going. This movie has none of that, right? But it's still just scary as fuck because... There is a texture and a tactile kind of 
nature to this movie that you can relate to in so many ways. Like, you know what that house probably smells like, you know what that attic smells like, you know what everything probably feels like in that house. If you've ever handled celluloid at all, you know what those little reels of 8mm feel like. There is like a weird physicality to the movie that you can kind of put yourself into. And so when the more supernatural stuff is happening, your brain kind of makes that logical leap into that. And you put yourself into that exact situation because you can relate to all these other things that have happened before leading into it. Lighting aside, this house is definitely like a house I could have visited one of my friend's families. This was the house they had. They did a great job of picking the house because it did feel very much like an anyone, anywhere type of style house. Yeah. Since like you evoked Texas Chainsaw back up a bit. uh, Yeah, you're right. Like it's almost a fully bloodless movie. You don't really see too much blood until like towards the end. And then there's one of the films has a couple throat slit and you see some of that happening. You're still just seeing it in a reflection in his glasses. You know, you're not even seeing it full out. Yeah, otherwise, all the other deaths are not clean in the sense of, like, I guess, bloodless, but you're still seeing people, like, hung from a tree. You're still seeing people drowned in a pool. You're still seeing people lit on fire in a car in the garage. I think the most sensationalistic this movie ever gets is, again, that idea of a snuff film aesthetic. But even then, because of the way it's portrayed on the Super 8 films and just the way this movie is going, it makes no bones about it being a supernatural movie even in the beginning when you aren't really exposed to much of the supernatural elements just yet it does feel otherworldly but in a really fucked up way but it doesn't feel like not mean-spirited but it doesn't feel grindhousey sure. i guess yeah, yeah, yeah and what an actual snuff film might feel like if you watch it but it still felt disturbing i mean the movie begins before you even know what the fuck this movie even is about you see these four people that are like nooses around their neck on a tree and it, the shot stays on them for a few seconds. And then you just see a tree limb fall down and they raise up. But you don't see their faces because they have bags on their heads. And you basically watch them hang to death. And that's how the movie fucking begins before you're introduced to Ethan Hawke, before any of the ship. And that's when I knew, like, okay, this movie is going to fuck me up. And it did. You know, is this the scariest movie I've seen? No. Again, is this scary movie you covered? No, probably not. But I'd put this in our top five scariest movies we've covered on this show. (laughs) And since you evoked another horror movie, Texas Chainsaw in this case, I will evoke something. And this, some people might be able to connect the dots in a spoilerish way. So if you're not ready for spoilers just yet, maybe skip a few seconds or go watch the movie and then come back. But the videoing people and their deaths kind of evoked a few movies that we've covered. It evoked Peeping Tom, especially that scene where you see like the light come on him when he's asleep. Yeah. It evoked Lost Highway. The idea of a camera moving in towards a house and towards a family and they're being unknowingly videoed. It evoked dead and buried and the idea of literally watching people getting murdered on like a Super 8 style camera. Again, this is a little bit of a spoilerish thing. So if you want to avoid that, it evoked the wailing for me and the idea of capturing the souls of people in video or pictures. Yeah. And it's never quite outright stated why in whatever fucked up ritual this is. They have to be videoed in this specific way. But in my head canon, I kind of took it as a way of capturing the souls. Well, you kind of get the idea that I guess we're talking spoilers, whatever. But you get the idea from his discussion with 
Professor Jonas, right, the occult expert later, that this Bagul entity has always kind of existed within images throughout time. So, like, we see some wood carved etchings, and you see some paintings and that kind of thing. He finds ways to influence people to create the medium for him to exist in, right? And the film camera, the Super 8 camera, seems just like the next logical step. You know, like, okay, these little cheap cameras started appearing in the 50s and 60s, and people just kind of casually had them. That would be a perfect way to, like, not just continue existence, but somehow move to the next level. Because now you're not just seeing Bagul in a painting or drawing or an etching. You're seeing him in motion 24 frames a second, right? Like you're seeing multiple images of him at once. And even though there are these just little one or two second clips of it, you're essentially seeing, you know, a multiplied, magnified dose of his power all at one time, which is another fun thing about the movie as a whole from a meta standpoint is we are now, as an audience, essentially piercing that barrier between the world of this movie in this film and us in real life. You know, we are absorbing these images of him. So are we now also tainted from watching the film? Kind of like The Ring, right? Yeah, I was about to bring up The Ring. The characters in The Ring watch the video and are haunted, but are we not, as the audience, also then haunted by the fact that we just took in the same images. That meta aspect is really fun about this as well. I will say, and this is another kind of minor gripe for me, it was a little on the nose with that idea at the very last jump scare, like the jump scare right before the credits. Sure. I mean, that last stinger, which so many fucking movies have done that same dumb shit. I hate it. That's so stupid. That is like one of my least favorite things about Ott's horror. Yeah, I don't like that final jump scare either, knowing that that was 100% just Jason Blum insisting on putting it on at the end just to get the audience one last jump. It's kind of frustrating because I think just slowly pulling the camera back into darkness and seeing that the film reels have lived on is you know a much creepier, more unsettling way to end the movie. You don't have to have that last jump scare. It's it's dumb. Yeah. And that that's where I think it was kind of hitting you over the head with like, oh, is Bagul now haunting you, audience? Yeah, and it makes you forget about what you literally just saw, which was that the film reels are now back, despite him burning them, and they are now going to carry on. And even then, just destroying the reels is not enough because we now see that like Bagul lives on in screenshots and photos, and these printouts that he's made, and the daughter's paintings on the wall, like, his influence is spreading like a weird virus, right? What would have happened if Ethan Hawke's book had actually ever gotten finished and published? Now, all of a sudden, you have potentially hundreds of thousands of copies of this book that is now a gateway directly to Bagul and his power and his universe or whatever the fuck it really is, you know? One of the things I did enjoy about this movie was the slow build-up to what is this entity and is this entity actually just a serial killer in the background? And, like, those first few images where he, like, slows down the image and, like, 
enhances to like the background and you see like a reflection of a ghoul and you can't quite tell exactly what that is or who that is when it could just be the killer. Yeah. All that I loved, like all that felt really creepy and really procedural, but in a fun way. Yeah. It felt like, okay, this guy really is like a true crime author who is really trying to hunt down the answer to this. Yeah. The pacing of the whole reveal is really fucking good throughout the course of the movie. I do wish they kind of kept it that way because the full appearance of Bagul is kind of laughable because he literally does just look like that one member of Slipknot. Yeah. Which has been the joke this whole time that he's very black metal looking and that's kind of on purpose, which I'll talk about in a second. Yeah, I I was reading the same thing and I do appreciate that, but I do think less is more. And I think that's why like the Babadook was more effective in terms of what the Babadook was because the Babadook just gave you enough of what Mr. Babadook looked like. That it was still really creepy, but whereas Sinister, I think, gave too much away of what Bagul looks like. Not just less is more, but also the execution in general. Seeing Bagul by the end just fully standing around, right? Like, you're not seeing him through a screen. You're not seeing him through all the grain of Super 8 footage. You know, you're not seeing, like, the sketchy, shadowy version of him. It's just... Now he's there standing in front of you. It's not as effective. Yeah. So it's not just how much you're seeing of him. It's also the medium through which you're seeing him. That's a lot of it. Yeah. And I do appreciate the black metal influences, but it actually came off more new metal looking. And not in the the best ways either. There's a little more edge to him, I guess, that pushes him yeah. over, yeah. Even the fact that he's, like, wearing a fucked up a little bit suit is kind of just, okay, okay movie. But <laughs> Bagul's design aside, otherwise, it is very creepy. The idea of Bagul is a far scarier to me than the actual, like, appearance. I do like that instead of trying to just pick a obscure Babylonian deity that already existed out of their asses, they, like, made him up. Yeah. They had all these other influences specifically what which babylonian god was he like moloch i think was what he was mostly based off of but he was kind of a mix of other deities throughout history to the point where i think either in the second movie i was reading either in the second movie or like on the official bagul facebook page of all places more is revealed about his history and he's apparently like the brother of moloch and okay he was cramping on moloch's style of worship and child sacrifice so the reason why Bagul doesn't really have a mouth is that Moloch sewn it shut with ash for his betrayal. <laughs> so like, sure, okay, but like, I don't need all that. But, you know, it is still fun to like be like, oh, and it's not necessarily a demon. It's not a ghost. It's an old Babylonian god. We saw this again, for instance, like the ritual. Spoiler for the ritual. D.D. in that movie is some forgotten bastard child of Loki. Yeah. But existing in modern times. And that's always like a fun trope. Something that was once a deity can now in modern times be perceived as a demon. And to the point, like you said, Professor Jonas kind of even hints at that. And my boy Vincent D'Onofrio, it was a treat to see him in this movie a couple times. But uh, I like how he describes how the Christians basically are responsible for like him being more obscure now. Like they burned his images down. And yeah, once you eliminate all traces and records and images. You know, that's how this particular entity lives and spreads and thrives. So, yeah, I mean, that makes it so that's the only way that you can get rid of him. But there, there's also a degree of reality to that. 
once Christianity did become more powerful on the world stage, they tried to get rid of as many of these older deities of polytheistic religions as they could, to the point where they even adapted some of these deities and said they were actually false gods and demons, um, which yeah. is why, you know, in our more modern sensibilities, we think of something like a Bagul or a Moloch as a demon rather than just an ancient god that was once worshipped thousands of years ago or whatever. Yeah, sure. So that's always a fun thing to like play with. Also, like you mentioned earlier, with the meta nature of playing with an audience participation in something horror related, like with the ring, that's always fun to see and that was fun to watch throughout this movie. I didn't necessarily need the full reveal. I do like the ending, uh, but I like the idea of the ending more than the visual execution, if that makes any sense. Well, again, it's really just the jump scare. Yeah, I think yeah. if you just took the jump scare off, I wouldn't have any problems with the. Oh, I'm not even talking about the jump scare. I'm talking about like the murder scene that happens. Oh, okay. Just, yeah, like things kind of crossing over into reality one way or another. Am I looking at a recorded image? Am I looking at reality? Like, am I, as the spectator, as the audience, where am I in this frame? Am I the one observing this? Well, not even just that, but like him fully appearing, like you said. Sure. Walking around, fully appearing, like didn't need all that. But I do like the idea of the ending quite a lot. I do like the idea of Bagul. The idea of Bagul is fucking scary more than the actual visual representation of him. But we can get into that once we like talk more in depth about what happens to Ethan Hawke by the end of this movie. So this movie was also interesting to me because, Aaron, I don't know if you felt the same way. I don't know if this is just my weird brain and the way I process things. I felt like there was a fun turn of the modern age that this movie kind of lies in because iPhones and Skype-style video messaging were were heavily involved in the plot of this movie. When did the iPhone first drop, but really explode on the scene? When did Skype really become super popular? Because I felt like they had only been popular for a couple of years leading up to like 2012 when this movie was dropping. So I find that funny that the movie unintentionally reminded me that that technology is still pretty fresh in yeah. our society in an odd way. So Skype had been around since the mid 2000s the iphone actually came out 2007 but smartphones as a whole really really started to become more mainstream around 2010 and 11 10 and 11 is kind of the peak where it finally fully broke and everybody started getting one yeah i feel like when blackberry folded that's really when smartphones exploded you know, in this movie, funny enough, they're just using like QuickTime. I don't even know that FaceTime was a thing back then, if I remember correctly, but they're just using like the QuickTime function. Because, funny enough, yeah. when they filmed those scenes with D'Onofrio, it's all in the same house. D'Onofrio is literally <laughs> sitting in a different bedroom of the house where they shot, and he's just sitting with like his back up against a bookcase with just other horror nerd books and tchotchkes and shit so they're in the same house and it's all just being done live over like a localized network kind of thing it's not real you know video chat but it's totally effective for the way that it works in this movie yeah and those scenes they didn't bother me even though it is a bit of let's stop the movie to explain the thing now it felt earned in this movie and it felt like it was consistent with the way it was going and yes of course ethan hawk's character wouldn't know or at least have access to this guy from his previous work 
through true crime and yada yada. Yep. And even slyly enough, Vincent D'Onofrio may want to like be as a mention in this guy's book because you know he liked the other one. But it was it was interesting because it was almost like evocative pre all these video chat horror movies we've seen now in the last few years. It felt a little bit like that, which was fun. But yeah, I actually appreciate Vincent D'Onofrio's like explanations of things. It wasn't too much. It was actually happening a lot later in the movie than I thought it would, uh, which was interesting. And you get the sense that Ethan Hawke seems kind of fucked already. But oh, let's yeah. at least explain how fucked he is. Well, that's one of my favorite things about <laughs> this movie, too, is he is super fucking compromised, like as a person. Oh, yeah. Right. He has massive, massive issues with his ego and pride and clearly based on you know the dialogue and everything he has done similar shenanigans to his family like he is just running rough shot over his fucking wife and kids chasing fame and he's in denial the whole time almost cost him his family the first time and yeah like you're yeah. saying he is in full fucking denial that no it'll work out this time I'll make sure it happens the way I want to well, this time. And not even denial of that, he's claiming the reason why he does this. To the point where he even says it in that interview that he, he's constantly like rewatching that I'm not doing it for the money and fame, I'm doing it to like help these people. And yeah. maybe that's a part of it, but really he's chasing the fame. To the point where when he's screaming at his wife later in the movie, he makes that line of, this could be my in cold blood. Oh, yeah. This could be my legacy. The moment, too, where he's drunk, and he's thumbing through all of his collection of tapes from his glory days, which that's interestingly similar to like the collection of the snuff reels. It's yeah. just this weird look at different time, different places, different places, different eras of people. And when they're committing, you know, these very weird moral transgressions, right? The moment where he stops what he's doing to call the police after he sees the first chunk of murders. And while he's on the phone with them, looks over at his fucking book just sitting there on the shelf, the stack of books that are unsold, right? And is just like, nah, fuck it. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pursue this. That's the moment where you know, like, okay, you just sealed your you own fate, up. my guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have fun. Yeah. Uh, weirdly enough, I, I compared him a bit to Walter White. Oh, yeah. And the also the dad from The Wailing. Walter White is actually a really good comparison, even though these are like completely different things. Yeah. Throughout Breaking Bad, Walter White is constantly denouncing, like, I'm doing all this for my family. Yeah. But then by the end, he admits, no, I did it for me. It was about my pride. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what this is. By the end of this movie, it feels a lot like the dad from The Wailing. Well, there's a lot of crossover, too, with Jack Torrance and The Shining. Yeah. Literally down to the fact that they're both authors and they don't want to just teach at a college. It's a lot of the same shit. He's got problems with alcoholism. His pride is kind of fucking with him. And they've moved to this town to kind of pursue this thing. Like Jack Torrance drags his family to the Overlook in the middle of nowhere for a fucking winter, right? To like pursue this weird pipe dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover with other characters, specifically ego-driven male characters, right? A lot of crossover there that I think works really, really well. And, you know, I love this yeah. Ethan Hawke performance all said and done. It just, the scene too, where he's speaking with the sheriff right at the beginning, like, tells you everything you need to know about his character. And you know what's funny? In that instance, and even like when he's calling the cops, I was even finding myself both agreeing and disagreeing with him, especially now after all the bullshit we've been through the last several years. 
there's a good reason not to trust cops in many situations. And I was actually kind of agreeing with the way he was handling the sheriff. But then also you find out very quickly, like, he moved into the house that uh-huh. this murder fucking happened in. And then you're just like, well, whatever moral high ground you had is now fucking gone too, bud. Yeah, again, that's putting your family through hell. And, like, he lies about it. Uh-huh. Well, he, he lies by not telling. He lies by omission, yeah. He lies by omission. And, like, that's where it's just, nah, uh-uh, you're in the wrong all of that was fantastic work. I love this character, even though I think this character is a horrible father and, and husband. I thought this was a well-written character. I think Ethan Hawke's performance as him was great. It was funny because going into this movie, I was a little worried. and Not because Ethan Hawke is a bad actor, but in my head for some reason, maybe it's because it, is it what training day he's in. Mm-hmm. I have this idea of Ethan Hawke in my head of training day Ethan Hawke. How will he ever like be just a mild manner like author who gets caught up in the supernatural horror movie? And I was thinking back to like Mark Wahlberg trying to be a science teacher in the happening and that like, <laughs> not being believable at all. I think the trees are mad at us, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, I thought there was going to be a little bit of that with Ethan Hawke, but no, Ethan Hawke is just such a good actor that he makes it work really well, I will say. Yeah. I love to the supporting characters in this. And, and that's also not the easiest thing to pull off when making a movie like this, but I like. The sheriff, Fred Thompson, shows up for two scenes, and both scenes are incredibly effective. And it's interesting how at the beginning you think he is going to be this antagonistic roadblock, but literally everything he says at the beginning of the movie is correct and kind of foreshadows everything that's going to happen, right? Yeah, and again, going back to what I just said, I found myself agreeing with a lot of things Ethan Hawke was saying to him initially, but then when you realize they moved into that house, that's when I was just like, Oh, okay. (laughs) James Ransone, who plays Deputy So-and-So. It's also hard to play, like, simpering fanboy, who's kind of tongue-tied and a little bit not sure what to say. It's tough to play that kind of character without it coming across as really caricatured. He does a great job of that. He shows up the right amount to kind of give Ethan Hawke exactly what he needs, But it's still kind of in that way of, wait, how do you know all this? What is all this bullshit? But you never really question it because he's so good at just playing the complete, absolute obsessed, you know, knows everything about all this kind of bullshit fanboy. And then Tracy, his wife in the movie, their whole dynamic is super fucking interesting. And it's so realistic. Like, we are both married at this point, have been married for years. Yeah. Granted, neither of us have moved our families into, you know, murder, a murder homes, house, but yeah. we've had conversations with our wives that are very similar to the conversations that they have in this movie and the things that they're fighting about and how they're fighting about it. And just the weirdness of being in the middle of doing something and having that kind of argument. And then you realize like, oh, I'm still like holding laundry that I was folding or Those moments are so well scripted and blocked out. The performances are great, and it's just very, very relatable in that way. And it's largely because Cargill and Derrickson both drew on real conversations they've had with their own spouses. Yeah, There is definitely a relatability to that, that again, it lures you in, and it helps you kind of buy into the more fantastical side of this because everything else is just so grounded and realistic yeah and that's kind of where you deal a little bit with the 
themes of dissolution of the family and yeah. familial strife, specifically spousal strife. So real quick, before we kind of move on, just I want to get my gripes out of the way just so we can like in earnest talk about the things that this movie really does well and kind of going off of his interactions with his wife. One of my other minor gripes is it just feels like their kids dis a fucking peer from this movie, especially the son in a way. They just feel almost like an afterthought until the very end. I did see a couple arguments online for this, and I can respect the opinion of the end felt like it was trying to force in a twist or like a shock involving one of the children who's otherwise not been a factor throughout the movie. It did bother me that much, but I do agree that the kids kind of disappear from this movie despite having a a couple scares throughout it. And then kind of the only other major gripe I have is that I felt like some of the editing choices, especially at the very end scenes, felt very like mid-aughts directed by a music video director type of horror cuts where it kind of was like bouncing around and doing all those like weird transitions. Again, kind of going back to the technology in this movie and the way it it had like such a dreadful atmosphere mixed with all these jump scares. This movie felt like an interesting like guidepost or touchstone of the true transition from aughts horror to like this Blumhouse era, like arguably a horror renaissance that we've been in for the last decade or sure. so. Movies like this, Insidious and The Conjuring, and and even It Follows, all these movies that came out in, like twenty eleven to twenty thirteen range, really feel like that transition of the Blumhouse era horror we're in now. But those are really just my main main gripes. The kid argument, it's tough because. Then if the kids are more involved in this movie, does it start becoming a little more tropey and predictable of like one of them is possessed, but which one is actually the possessed one that we've seen a million times? So there is an argument to be made that I I like that we kind of more focus on mostly Ethan Hawke through most of this movie and we kind of figure out the mystery with him. Yeah. And we kind of have to live through these horrific snuff films, for lack of better terms, with him. That's where the horror really thrives is you're reacting with Ethan Hawke's character when you're watching these films. And that's where it's really effective. Yeah. Kind of to go to like the actual snuff films themselves, where again, a lot of the horror lies. Like I said, the setup to this movie is fantastic because, you know, you have him, he's lied by omission, moved him and his family into the murder house. He's trying to catch this killer that murdered this family in this house a year prior by hanging them from a tree. And, one of their children is missing and was never found, and he's trying to catch this killer. As they're moving into the house, he goes up into the attic. He sees the scorpion, drops a box to kill the scorpion. It pops open one of the floorboards, and he discovers all the Super 8 films. And they're all labeled things like Pool Party 66, Sleepy Time 82, or something like that. Yeah, He starts watching them, and lo and behold, they're all just videos of entire families being murdered. And then as he starts digging in through the course of the film and getting Deputy So-and-So involved because Deputy So-and-So is fanboying and wants to be part of the book. But like, it turns out Deputy So-and-So actually is pretty good at chasing down and connecting these dots. You start finding out that there's been all these murders through the United States where like an entire family will get killed off in one go except one child and the child goes missing and was never found. The setup to that is so good yeah, and gives such a good excuse as to like why Ethan Hawke is constantly looking through these films. The procedural edge of all the investigation stuff is really solid in this and movie. It, it gives such a good reason to like expose all of these progressively to the audience. 
you can make an argument that they all get progressively more and more disturbing. The most famous one is the lawnmower one. Yeah. That most people know. Most people have either seen the GIF or most people have seen the video of that jump scare. There were two jump scares that almost made me throw my computer out of my lap. One was that one, but not because of what you see, but because of the noise. Sure. I never watched the video. I'd only seen the GIF of it. I didn't realize that that loud roar screeching noise occurs right when the body comes on screen. That fucked me up. And then again, the ghost girl's face coming into view right next to Ethan Hawke's face fucked me up. But like the most disturbing of the Super 8 snuff films was actually the first one, the Hanging Tree one. I don't know why. Like I think because we really watched that one the whole way through uninterrupted without even Ethan Hawke's reactions to it. And just kind of seeing them kick their legs as the life's going out of them. And you know two of them are younger. That was disturbing to me. I don't know if which one you found the most disturbing or which one was the one that affected you the most. I mean, all of them were yeah. fucked up in, in the a way. The pool one bothers me, partly because you do see Bagul like at the bottom of the pool. And that in and of itself is so fucking weird and unnatural. And like a dark pool, dark water... That entire idea of thalassophobia, like, bothers me, right? Yeah. The family getting pulled into the pool upside down in the chairs, like, that triggers all of my claustrophobia shit. (laughs) Knowing, too, that they kind of just had to film some of this shit for real. So, like, there's no trick, there's no special effect to the pool stuff. They literally just had to fucking pull these stunt people in upside down in the pool And then the actor who plays Bagul is literally at the bottom of the pool just with weights in his costume to hold him down. And it was all a very, we have to shoot this and get it right and we can't fuck around kind of thing. Just knowing that even in real life, there is a real element of danger to that bothers me. And it also goes back to like the Peeping Tom part of this movie, the voyeuristic nature, because the whole time when these Super 8s are shot, because they start off weirdly enough almost like someone spying from the bushes on these families as they're like out for a picnic or during the day when they're at the pool and normally and then it cuts to like this weird fucked up time where again voyeuristic someone off camera is watching them and pulling like ropes or doing something to cause these murders to happen and uh you don't really know who but yeah that one's fucked up the barbecue one got me because just I don't know, like all of it just being in the garage and you're like tied in your own car and lit on fire that way. The one that wasn't nearly that affected to me was actually Sleepy Time, even though Sleepy Time is kind of the most realistic one out of all of them. Yeah. Because it was very like Manson family-esque yeah. the way that one is carried out. But yeah, Family Hanging Out, I think, was the one that got me the most just because we spend so much time on that one. Yeah. So that's a good transition into talking about some production stuff real quick, which won't take that long. The genesis of this movie actually kind of stems from that video. So Robert Cargill, the co-writer, had a nightmare after he watched 2002 The Ring. Mm -hmm, I read this, yeah. And he (laughs) dreamed that he found a snuff film in his attic that was of his family being hung from a tree. What a fucking nightmare to have. Yeah, right? He literally woke up from the nightmare, wrote the whole thing down, and it had just been like sitting in his head for fucking ever. I've heard a couple of interviews and stuff with the two of them over the years, and basically he bumps into Scott Derrickson at like a con or a festival or something in Vegas. And it's like midnight, they're both kind of drunk, 
and they just go sit down in this fucking lounge for like three more hours, just continuing to drink and hammer out this idea. And that's kind of where this fucking thing came from. Well, and what's fascinating about it is Carghill's original idea was just a more modern take on the boogeyman. Yes. Just calling him Mr. Boogie. And it was actually going to be more of this weird Willy Wonka. Yeah. Like a dark Willy Wonka that lures children. They specifically mentioned the Johnny Depp version of Willy Wonka, like that look. Yeah. And I cannot fucking fathom how stupid that would have been probably <laughs> like as much as we clown on the black metal look of the bagul makeup if this was literally just mr creepy wonka like no done this is not gonna work but you know it's funny is like i think the better realized version of that is the babadook actually and the babadook has some similarities to bagul in this movie but like the babadook's design is a little more not fully Willy Wonka, but a little not, more yeah, not at all, goofy characteristic. Other than like the hat and like the long cloak, which all of that is way more shadow than it is anything else. I don't know. I kind of fundamentally find the idea of an ancient demon, pagan, god, deity thing, anything, any kind of supernatural entity that takes the time to fucking get dressed fancy to be, like, not scary, right? <laughs> Whatever, the Babadook's creepier than Bagul. <laughs> that fundamentally just never really works for me. It doesn't matter if it's, like, Slenderman or this Bagul, where by the end, yeah, he's just wearing a fucking suit. None of that shit really ever works for me. <laughs> See, you know what? After Bagul's done, like, basically abducting children, that's, hey, by the way, that's a whole nother, like, horror element of this movie that we didn't really talk too much about is, He's basically a child abductor, and he does it through, like, the ultimate Stockholm Syndrome with the children. Yeah. <laughs> There's all that element, but, uh, you know, when he's not doing that, he's meeting up with his band Slipknot to go, like, tour some more. Yeah, really. He pushes his fingers into his eyes. <laughs> but I do like that they keep the origins of the character very kind of simple and mysterious and it's like a it's so old and ancient that nobody fucking remembers this anymore it wasn't well documented we only have two or three instances of this thing being referenced throughout history i like that mystique that there is not a specific origin for this dude i like that they went with the idea of it again just being like pagan deity tm to kind of set it outside of modern religions right yeah, I agree with that. And despite that there is the black metal kind of look to it, it's kind of interesting that that is still where they landed, because Cargill's apparently scoured the internet looking for inspiration and eventually found a very similar image and even paid the artist who made the image for the rights to it. And it's just wild that that's still kind of where they landed, all things considered. But it's it's not the worst, I will say. I know people like clown on that, but it's it's not the worst ultimately. It's not awful. Like and it, it is still effective when you see him in the background of some of the jump scares with Ethan Hawk, like seeing his image in the yard for a second, yeah. or in the background of the Super Eight films. Those are effective. It's again, it's just when they reveal too much of him is sure. when I think it's too slipknot. Yeah. But, you know, like, yeah, it's easy to clown on. But the fact that this movie is still so scary and effective regardless is very impressive. I, I, don't, I think you may be getting to this point, but I think part of the reason why 
it went in that direction is because Derrickson especially like did a lot of research into black metal and their whole aesthetic and what they look like. And that was what the inspiration was for like Bagul's symbol or rune that you see that's yeah. always ritualistically like painted at the scene of the uh, murders. But it also probably is what kind of influenced his final design yeah. at the end of the day. So ultimately, yeah, they took this pitch to all the major studios who kind of turned it down. They went to Blumhouse. Jason Blum was all about it. Uh, it was a U.S., Canadian, U.K. co-production. I didn't realize Blumhouse was involved. Talk about, again, like my point that this is a guidepost turning point yeah. from like odds horror to Blumhouse era modern horror. Yep. They shot during the fall of 2011 in Long Island, uh, which Long Island has its own like weird, you know, urban legend kind of history of boogeyman stuff with all the cropsy stories over the yeah. years and everything mm-hmm. else. So it's interesting that like that is just kind of where they ended up shooting. I don't know if that was on purpose or not. I never really have discovered why. Well, and my family is from New York, but there are parts of Long Island, despite how close it is with New York City and it's part of the greater area. There are parts of Long Island that are urban spread out kind of like that. Yeah. Like it is in this movie. I forgot throughout the movie that it was Long Island. It, it kind of felt like it could be anywhere in America, really. Yeah. The score of the movie is very minimal. Uh, it was yes. Christopher Young doing the score, but there is a lot of electronic, experimental, industrial kind of stuff mixed in there as well. The one track I recognized that plays a couple times, because it's from one of my favorite electronic albums, but specifically the track Gyroscope by Boards of Canada. Boards of Canada, yep. This movie has such a good use of that track. Um, yeah. I actually added that track to our Spotify playlist for this podcast because of this movie. Like hearing Gyroscope was great. That track, out of the context of this movie, does not at all have that creep factor to it. Just no. putting it with this movie and the imagery that you're seeing in the movie unlocks something in kind of a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. Tiptoe through the tulips with Insidious. Yep. You know, there you go. But yeah, the movie premiered at South by Southwest in March of 2012. It was released theatrically in October of that year, grossed $88 million on its $3 million budget. So there's your car always sells plug right there for anybody who's wanting to potentially get into filmmaking. You can do a whole lot with a whole little, but there is pretty good payoff potential if you can get it in front of the right people. 
I do like that the Super 8 segments were actually shot using Super 8 cameras and film stock. Yes. Really appreciate it when they like take that authentic. It's not just an Instagram filter. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. Besides jump scares, those are obviously the creepiest moments of these movies. One of the things that got me, and this is more of how does this get you as a parent, besides the obvious stuff that happens and the way the story goes, the one scene that really got me, and this is why I wish the son was more involved in this movie and it's the first big jump scare i guess but it is well done because you actually see it coming it's not just out of nowhere in the middle of the night he hears thumping and he gets up and there's a box sitting in the middle of the hallway yeah and there's thumping coming in the box and then the sun comes out of the box backwards screaming yeah from that jump scare you find out the sun has a history of night terrors and sleepwalking i mean granted my ass would have been out we would be like nope we're out of here First of all, I would have never moved my family into a murder house. But yeah. even if I did and lied by omission and knew I was in a murder house, that happened with one of my kids. We're out of there. Yeah. That's it. All it takes. But like him coming out of the box, not just that imagery was freaky because it was. My daughter now, and she's way younger, but she is of that age now where she gets nightmares and night terrors. And sure. it happens every other week where she'll wake up two or three in the morning screaming and I either have to go in her room and lay next to her toddler bed, or I just straight up have to take her and bring her into the guest room and sleep in the guest bed with her. Like, And just kind of that simple idea of finding your child, not just in a vulnerable state like that in the middle of the night, but like in a very creepy way. Like, Because yeah. isn't he naked as well? Or like not fully naked, but like it's just in his underwear or something, like when he comes yeah. out of the box. Yeah, he's like wearing night clothes. But the thing, too, where Ethan Hawke, brings him outside and tells him to look at the stars. Apparently all of that is really some shit that Scott Derrickson's kid deals with. And that's something that he had to do with him a few times to get him to kind of snap out of that. But it's interesting that both of the kids have sleep issues, right? Both of them have night terrors or they sleepwalk or whatever, and they have a history of it. So it's not like it just started happening when they moved into the house, but it makes you kind of wonder we see in a lot of other horror movies, like are certain people, you know, that have these kind of underlying issues specifically susceptible to, you know, some kind of evil demonic influence or whatever, right? Like that's kind of an interesting question that the movie kind of poses, but never really deals with fully. This kind of going to the realm of ghost hunting and stuff in real life, but like the idea of poltergeist activity and possession, there's a theory that it always occurs around younger children who are about to enter like their teenage years specifically girls yeah so yeah there's an idea of that too and the movie kind of in my opinion gives away sort of what's going to happen when they when they first move into the house with the idea of what his daughter does in her room as soon as it revealed oh she draws paintings on her walls and they kind of let her do that yeah as long as it's contained in her room creepy kid i knew knew, like oh creepy kid painting obviously uh i i kind of know what's gonna happen now one of these kids is gonna be the problem and then yeah and you see it coming from a mile away but i get maybe that's just my poor sensibilities like i kind of know where this is going another thing that sometimes i find very frustrating in horror movies is that idea of just get out of the house sure why are you continuing this and ethan hawk does that a lot in this movie yeah there's never really a moment where they go for it right yeah there's never the moment where they try and the car doesn't start or they try and the tree falls on the driveway or 
Yeah. They try and the doors are like, they don't even try. This is one of the prime examples of you had every opportunity and now it's too late. But I think the why it didn't bother me in this movie, even though it is very tropey, is going back to his pride and going back to that Walter White. I'm going to go down this path of destruction as far as I need to for like the fame and fortune. You know he's blinded by it. Yeah, it's not just stupidity. The fact that the family for most of the movie has no idea what house they're in, or at least his wife doesn't, justifies that. I'm going to talk about what happens at the end now, audiences and Aaron, because this is where my point's going. Where the movie really comes together for me and really is effective is with the final revelation, because the movie flips the idea of what an audience thinks the character should do the entire time. Again, like we just said, you know, the idea of just leave the haunted house, never look back, burn all the shit, leave, et cetera, et cetera. And they do actually finally make that final step when Ethan Hawke has a kind of sleepwalking days that he goes up in the attic, sees all the ghost children, and then Bagul, and he falls out of the attic. He finally is like, I've had enough of this shit, grabs all the film reels, burns them in the yard, tells his wife, get all your shit, the kids were going. And they finally do that scene that in so many horror movies you like want the protagonist to do. But what you don't realize, and this is where the movie does like, this is where I thought it was a little bit clever, even though you could kind of see it coming, is that happening is actually the final step of unspoken ritual that you're not really sure how Bagul finalizes the possession of a child that leads to the murders. When he's talking to Vincent D'Onofrio earlier in the movie, Vincent D'Onofrio isn't telling him like, oh, Bagul has to do this, this, and this, and this first to like complete the ritual. He's just kind of explaining how Bagul operates. So you're never quite sure, like, maybe, who knows, like, even though we're saying all that stuff, Aaron, maybe they were fucked as soon as they walked in the door of the house, kind of like the grudge. Sure, yeah. We don't know. The movie never tells you when the ritual is actually starting to happen. But you basically realize that all the scares and tormenting through the movie that were done on Ethan Hawke were because they were at the previous murder house, and they were done intentionally by Bagul to get them to leave and never look back so they could go to the next house to become the new murder grounds to complete the ritual. And that's when you realize after they leave this house and they move back to their old house, Deputy so-and-so has been trying to blow up his phone, trying to get him to answer. He finally answers when it's way too late. Deputy so-and-so has really realized, like, I put all these crimes together and it turns out that every time a family was murdered, they lived in the previous house of the previously murdered home. You basically just completed the ritual for whatever killer is after you. Yeah, It's a simple, fun horror twist reveal that kind of inverts that trope of questioning why horror characters don't just leave a haunted house when making the leaving of the haunted house the actual like last part of the ritual I thought was sure. pretty fun. And sure enough, his daughter gets possessed. His daughter somehow drugs all three of them with, I guess, Bagul's blood or yeah. what or something. It's never made clear what that fucking predator blood is. Yeah, yeah, the predator blood in this coffee cup. I guess it's Bagul's fluids. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, she has her new video, which her new video is finger painting 2012 or something in which she hacks up her parents and her brother and paints with blood all over the walls. And then Bagul shows up and carries her off into his realm through like the Super 8 screen with all the other dead children. Which again, I love the idea of all that. It's fantastic. I love the actual ending of this movie. My, my little minor gripes are with just more the visual aesthetic portrayal of how it happens. Sure, I think the true victim through the, this entire movie, besides the wife, is the brother. He's obviously troubled. He's having night terrors. He's being picked on at school. He's drawing the family murders at school and getting trouble for it. 
And then he just gets drugged by his sister and hacked to pieces, apparently. Like, <laughs> yep. At 12 years old. Great. Yep. Dark shit. So, last thing I kind of have down here, uh, we haven't really talked about the cast, but I mean, you know, Ethan Hawke, where do we even start, right? If you don't know what Ethan Hawke has been in, look him up. He's been in a ton of stuff over the years. I say that. He's been in a ton of stuff, but he has a very interesting career because he will float into genre with no questions and then float right back into some indie prestige drama, whatever. He's been in so many things, though. Yeah, he just worked with Derrickson again on the Black Phone. He was in the North Band. He was in Moon Knight. He is currently the voice of Batman in Bat Wheels, which is a show about Batman cars, apparently. Dude has been in a wild chunk of stuff. Him as the detective in Training Day is what stands out in my head for some reason. Well, interesting, too. You also mentioned a while back in recommendations that you watched the original Assault on Precinct 13. He is one of the leads in the remake of that, which is not the worst. His character's name, Ellison Oswalt, 100% Cargill and Derrickson have copped to the fact that it's just a nod to Harlan Ellison and Patton Oswalt. (laughs) His wife in the movie is played by Juliet Rylance. She is the stepdaughter of actor Mark Rylance. Uh, She started in stage acting as well. She is in Francis Ha, which is a Greta Gerwig movie that's delightful. The Nick, American Gothic, Perry Mason. So she's been a lot of TV in the last couple of years. James Ransone, who I mentioned earlier, is Deputy So-and-So. He is in a ton of TV, specifically HBO stuff like The Wire. Everybody knows him as fucking Ziggy in that. Generation Kill, Treme. But he's also been in a lot of Spike Lee stuff like Inside Man, Red Hook Summer, and Old Boy. He is the only cast member who like really fully shows up for Sinister 2, which I'll talk about in a second. And then recently, he was also in The Black Phone, and he is one of the leads in It Chapter 2. He's the adult version of Eddie. The Sheriff is played by Fred Dalton Thompson. He is one of those that-guy actors from the late 80s and in through the 90s that has a truly insane career. The first thing I remember seeing him in was Die Hard 2. Yes. Isn't he like the director in the uh, airport or something? Something like that. He's just one of the fucking bureaucrats and that whole thing. So check this out. I knew a lot of details about this. I just didn't realize how crazy his career has been. So you and I will probably remember that he was a state senator for Tennessee for a while. And then in 2008, he ran for president and he didn't make it through the primaries, right? Yep, I remember that. So it goes even crazier than that. He is from Tennessee. I think he was born in Alabama, but he's from Tennessee. Began his career as a lawyer in 1967. He became an assistant U.S. attorney in 69. And then by 72 and 73, he was a member of the Minority Council during the Watergate hearings. I remember reading about that a while ago, yep. Supposedly, Senator Howard Baker's famous question, what did the president know and when did he know it, is attributed to Thompson. In 1977, he represented Marie Ragionati in a wrongful termination suit, which blew open a bribery racket that took down the Tennessee governor. Aussie film director Roger Donaldson, who he has a fucking wild, interesting career once I looked him up. Lots of stuff I've seen, but 
putting it all together, oh, this is all the same guy. Sleeping Dogs, Smash Palace, both of which are like Aussie classics. The Bounty, Cocktail, Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. Cadillac Man, White Sands, The Getaway, Species, Dante's Peak, 13 Days, and The Bank Job. What a wild career. He wanted to adapt this woman's story and ask Thompson if he would just play himself in the movie. So that's how he got into acting, was literally playing himself in a famous case that he had a few years prior. And then he went on to like act a shit ton uh-huh. and still kind of do politics later in life. Yeah. Okay. So he's in Roger Donaldson's No Way Out after Marie. He's in The Hunt for Red October, Days of Thunder, Die Hard 2, Necessary Roughness, Cape Fear, In the Line of Fire, Baby's Day Out. Most people will know him from Law & Order. He's been in every Law & Order franchise. He was in the main show, almost 200 episodes over the years. And he continued working in politics. He is still the only acting politician who still you know, had a side career acting. Because even people like Reagan and Schwarzenegger like quit acting for a while, right? But after Al Gore resigned from the Senate to serve as Clinton's VP, Thompson won his seat in a special election in 94, but then was reelected for a full term in 96. And he served on various committees like the Finance, Intelligence, and National Security Committees. He supported John McCain's 2000 presidential bid. He ran for president himself in 2008. He's worked as a columnist, radio analyst. He died in 2015 from lymphoma reoccurrence. And through all this, he's acting. He died in 2015. Ran for president in 2008, and literally in between those two things, he's making Sinister. Fucking wild. Yeah, well, looking at his final films, too, 2012, he jumps from Sinister into Christian films. That's what I was like, about to say. It's, a, it's a lot of, like, grifty Christian films. Yeah. You know, his politics are obviously not the politics that I share. It Same. was interesting reading through his wiki though just to kind of see like what his stance were on some things and even though like you know there are a lot of fundamental things that i don't line up with him with it's interesting to see oh this is what normal republicans used to be like aka very moderate to the center of way to the center of the republicans we have now it's very interesting to read stuff like he was a pro-life candidate, but didn't believe that we should be like locking up women for having abortions. Yeah. He believed that we should secure the border, but we should also have a very clear and easily accessible pathway for people to immigrate. Not just throwing people in camps or yeah, like very jailing interesting them forever. To yeah, read yeah. through his positions and see like, okay, I don't agree with this stance. But you at least see all the holes in, okay, we can't just die hard, do this one thing with no... You actually have a little bit of empathy. Yeah, and you have to <laughs> yeah. like actually think about the consequences of enacting these things will be long-term. Yeah, it was very interesting to like remember, oh yeah, Republicans used to be much more level-headed and reasonable. I mean, they were still far off from ideal. Exactly. But still, it's a world of difference from what we have now. It's wild. Yeah, like playing with fascism, basically. Openly. Not playing? Playing? Not playing, yeah. Question mark? Supporting yeah. fascism. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. Michael Hall Dario plays Trevor, the son. He has not done a lot of acting because he and his brother have their own indie band called the Lemon Twigs. 
They have been doing music since they were very young. They started this band when they were 14. They are apparently still doing music together. Dude, they put out an album this year, 2023. Yeah. So yeah. good on him. They put it out in May. Yeah, good on him. I'm definitely going to check him. it out out of curiosity. I kind of want to like give them a listen to see what it's yeah. like. Yeah. To be the same with you is most recent album that came out in may everything harmony actually has gotten really good reviews it's like okay. their most critically acclaimed and seems like it's their most famous now uh it has a metacritic average of an 88 out of 100 like pretty damn good all right yeah i'll i'll check it out just out of curiosity claire foley plays the daughter ashley she was in a lot of tv specifically law and order orange is the new black and gotham where she is young before she was Poison Ivy, Poison Ivy. So she was in a chunk of that show. And then, yeah, we mentioned Vincent D'Onofrio, who plays Professor Jonas. He is uncredited in this movie, by the way. It was just a total, like, show up, do a day, and you're good. Did he know Scott Derrickson or something? Like, how did that come about? Because that's fascinating. I'm not sure. I, I literally think it was probably just they might have crossed paths previously, and he just reached out to him and was like, yeah, sure, I'll come down for a day of work no big deal yeah and then lastly stuntman nicholas king plays Bugul. no it wasn't Corey taylor it was not anybody <laughs> from slipknot it was nobody from mudvane so like i mentioned earlier there's a sequel in 2015 that picks up directly from the first movie because i read the synopsis and apparently okay. this movie's terrible it's not good i i watched it years ago yeah and i can tell you uh it's not good yeah which is a shame because the actual setup of the sequel for a sequel is pretty good on paper on on paper yes. yeah, yeah on paper the idea of he quit the police force because he's he disturbed was by what happened like something happened yeah to the oswald family he is going around the country and he's burning any bagul artifacts he's burning yeah. the houses that the murders took place in he's basically trying to like backtrack everything to the source enough to like get rid of it at the root and so along the way he gets to one of the places where one of the murders occurred and finds this woman and her two twin boys and they're like on the run from the abusive father one of the twin boys starts getting kind of evilly possessed and like abusive like his dad through Bagul. And I just remember there being a fucking cursed radio involved, <laughs> like a, like yeah, a ham radio that they talked to yep. Bagul through. <laughs> the ghost children actually like have speaking roles, I think, in this movie, too. Like they have more. Of yeah, a there was like a lot more interaction with the kids on paper. A lot of it sounds cool. It doesn't work. 
it's largely very boring. Yeah, you know, I complained a little about some of the cheap jump scares in this one. Apparently that movie is just nothing but cheap jump scares. The idea of Deputy So-and-so is so disturbed by like what happens to the Oswald family, and he had already put together like all those murders were tied to like the family living in the previous murder house before moving and then it happening in a new location. All of that is such a good setup for a sequel, but it's disappointing that the execution was not there and they kind of followed the wrong lessons, I guess, of this movie. The other thing that made me laugh was there was talk of there not being a Sinister 3, but a crossover with Insidious because there's been, I don't know, like fan theories that Insidious and Sinister take place in the same universe. You could see that as a possibility. And I remember when these two came out and people were talking about them, People would often get these two movies confused because they both have families with kids and like evil entities. People would get them confused pretty regularly. Yeah. Well, and Jason Blum even stated at one point that there was a crossover that was tentatively in development that he he jokingly referred to as in Sinister. He was saying that he would like to have those worlds cross eventually. Granted, that was back in like 2017, 18 or something like that. But, uh, you know. Who's to say, like, maybe one day we'll get Sinister versus Insidious, Bagul versus the demon that likes uh, tiptoe through the tulips, yeah. <laughs> like fighting over the souls of children or whatever. Cool. Well, yeah, that's really all I got. We mentioned the stupid broadband choices, which, okay, by the way, I laughed earlier when you mentioned this. The group who did this scientific study, in air quotes, is broadband choices. It's literally just a fucking UK website that is all about comparing the different broadband options available to you so that you can make the best consumer decision. And again, this is the goofiest. They host private screenings. They hook you up to a heart rate monitor and they like stretch out testing these movies over weeks and weeks. Was this their like Scientology way of trying to get you to pick their broadband? They're not a broadband provider. They're just the one comparing Uh, all the different choices. That's what I'm saying. This is like such a weird, extremely unofficial bullshit group with a very non-scientific or artistic study. It's just, it's so goofy to me. It made me laugh when I read it. But for the purpose of talking about this show, Sinister took the number one spot in 2020, and it has been number two in the two years since. Now, I think the cheat comes in because host... A movie which is good, but is only an hour long, took the number one spot the last two years. But if we're talking like heart rate per minute per second of movie runtime length, kind of a cheat to have a movie that's not even a full length movie win, considering. I don't know. The whole thing sounded really dumb when I was looking into it. Oh, it is, but it's still fun. And there is an argument. Again, I don't think it's the scariest movie ever, but no. Sister is up there in scarier horror movies. There's a lot of recency bias in the movies that were chosen. I don't know why they chose those movies. They say like, oh, we looked at reviews and audience, blah, blah, blah. But like none of that was around in the same way, in a measured way, like Rotten Tomatoes 30, 40 years ago. You know, so like how many older movies are really getting into the list? Well, The Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw, that's about it. Like, the fact that Dashcam is on the, like, newest list is kind of wild to me. Like, in what universe would any hardcore horror fan really be like Dashcam was terrifying? I don't know. It just seemed like a wild list of 
recent stuff more than anything. I will say a site that I actually really enjoy going to from time to time is where's the jump.com it <laughs> registers how many like jump scares are in a movie that 100 is your site yeah dude you should check it out it's a very well done site uh it's been around for a while too but sinister has a five out of five jump scare rating sure and it's one of the highest and most intense jump scare movies according to where's the jump.com along with insidious another movie we brought up a few times kind of a final thought that i had too was Granted, this is just right off the wiki because I was looking uh, at a couple other things, see if I missed anything. People have pointed out in kind of recent review of this movie and like analysis that there is representation of both old and new media in this movie. Uh, Again, going back to the fun idea of you seeing new modern technology kind of rising throughout this movie. I thought that was just me that it stood out to me, but apparently it's not. Um, And then again, juxtaposing that with the Super 8 film is fun. Part of the reason why like, I didn't even bother with this movie, not just because of the jump scares and all that, was because it only like got pretty middling reviews when it first came out. I got average reviews, and when I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes, it was holding a 63%. And I remember just being like, oh, okay, I guess it's just another stale jump scare fest horror movie. But what brought my attention to this movie actually has been the last several years is the horror community especially on twitter too uh or x or whatever we're calling it now we are not calling it x we are calling it twitter (laughs) i don't care what the boy king says (laughs) but like sinister has been propped up by the horror community quite a lot yeah in the last several years like this movie has aged really well and a lot of people point to it being kind of underappreciated when it first came out um which is funny to say because it was a box office success and then it had a sequel but still you know i think critically it was uh underrated for sure and i would agree with that yeah absolutely a lot of it is i remember seeing so many reviews at the time that were just oh it's just full of jump scares i don't like jump scares therefore movie is bad it was just a lot of reviews that were like that there definitely were reviews calling out oh yeah bagul like by the end interesting idea he's not that creepy it's kind of goofy by the end you know i don't buy the credibility of any actual well-renowned author like moving into a murder house that seems very far-pitched and i'm like is it is it especially now in these last few years you know i wouldn't put it past any true crime aficionado or writer to move into an actual murder house yeah not at all okay well yeah i think that's gonna be it for this episode that's all i got yeah i can't believe it i uh survived one of the scarier movies that we've done I still got Insidious and I still got The Conjuring on board and maybe even Woman in Black as far as scary supernatural jump scare fests. But hey, at least I survived this one. Yeah, from the beginning, I remember you being like, this is one that's going to make me lose my shit. So yeah, see, guess what? It's okay. You didn't lose your shit. (laughs) Yeah. Still scared the (laughs) fuck out of me. Still not going to revisit it anytime soon. But yes, it is a very good movie. Ethan Hawke was a blast to watch in this movie, uh, even though like his character... It's kind of the worst (laughs) and kind of all his fault that all of these things happen. Well, that's also what makes it kind of the best. So, hell yeah. All right, cool. Well, uh, that is going to be it for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek. Join us for all future episodes through whatever podcatcher you use at this point. We are on basically all of them. All our links to all of them are on our Podbean website, which is yep. watchofdare.podbean.com. Yep. 
We also have a Patreon now. Link is also on our Podbean website, as well as our Twitter and Facebook. Yep. And uh, we have bonus content on there for our lovely patrons. Thank you to all of you who have contributed so far. Hope you are enjoying the bonus content. We break format from the main show a little bit, and we are covering television. We are moving all of our commentary tracks there interviews we're gonna do some franchise deep dives later just did cruel jaws commentary baby hell yeah summer <laughs> shark shit so yeah lots of good stuff there it's just five bucks a month it helps us keep this main show ad free uh, we don't want to spend time talking to you about ball shavers and mattresses let's keep it available everywhere let's keep it ad free and accessible to everyone but to do that uh, it helps us out a lot if you would jump in and become a patron and help us pay for everything that we need to keep the show going and show your thanks. And again, we have lots of good bonus content on there for you in return. So check it out. Yeah, Only $5 a month. Yep. There's already several hours of bonus content just for our patrons and it's patreon.com slash watch if you dare. Yep. Yep. You can find us on social media, as we mentioned before, at watch if you dare on twitter facebook blue sky threads i don't know we're working on all that shit yeah so yeah find us there for any kind of future updates once again big thanks to my little brother jesse mansfield aka party gator for the music bumps the beginning and ends of all of our episodes you can find more of his stuff on Bandcamp if you check out party gator big clown opossums he's got several spinoff groups there so uh, check out his music. You might find something that you like. Throw him a couple of bucks. Get you some tunes. We still have our Spotify music playlist that Derek mentioned in the episode. That can be found on our Podbean page and Facebook page as well. Uh, we've just got lots of spooky tunes, either from movie soundtracks or just inspired by movie soundtracks or, you know, just in the general vibe. So there's lots of stuff there to check out. That is, again, on Spotify. And um, I think that's going to be about it. Any other final thoughts? Well, Aaron, you know how uh, we're always working towards getting like more reviews on Apple and Spotify, working our way up the charts, becoming a hit podcast, becoming famous. Well, don't worry, Sally. I'll make you famous again. <laughs>